Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. When I write a homily, I won't necessarily remember to say everything that I've written. But what I will remember is the stuff that's closest to my heart. It's the stuff that I can preach with conviction. And then people say, thank you, Father, that was amazing. And it just kind of brought home to me, well, you know, it's, it's much more about the conviction that I say a homily with than about the clever ideas that one might have. Welcome to Preach, a podcast from America Media on the art of Catholic preaching. I'm your host, Ricardo de Silva, a Jesuit priest from South Africa, associate editor at America Media in New York, and associate pastor at the Church of St. Francis Xavier. In each episode, we take you into the minds and hearts of some of the finest preachers in the Catholic Church. We listen to their homilies, learn what makes them great, and draw inspiration to keep preaching the good news. This week on Preach, we are joined by Isaac L. Fernandez, a Jesuit of the Southern Africa province. Isaac was born and raised in Zimbabwe, but currently lives and works in Lusaka, Zambia. Welcome to Preach, Isaac. Thank you very much. Great to be here with you, Ricardo. It's wonderful to have you and to have a connection back to home. I miss Southern Africa dearly and certainly my dear South Africa. So you're in neighboring Zambia. It's good to be with you. The readings you're preaching on for us this week are for the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year B. The Gospel reading is Matthew 11, 25 to 30. And in that reading, Jesus thanks God for hiding wisdom or deeper truths from those who the world might see as superior. There's this great role reversal that those who are wise in the eyes of the world have no wisdom in the kingdom of heaven, and those who perhaps the world discards have wisdom. How are you thinking about these readings as you go into the homily? I mean, the first thing that I would say is that when I preach on a Sunday, I'm normally only aiming to preach on one reading. That's a pro tip. Yes, yes. <laughs> I remember once a priest I really loved and admired, a Jesuit priest, Peter Titland. He was a great guy. He was so friendly, so fraternal. And he was the chaplain to one of those universities there. And so one day we asked him what he was preaching on. And he said, oh, this week I just have salaula. <laughs> That's a, it's like secondhand clothing, which mm-hmm. comes in these big, huge bales mostly from the first world. And it's super cheap, but, you know, it's potluck. Mm -hmm. So that was his way of saying that, you know, he didn't really have a a specific theme or something. He was just going to throw out a whole lot of ideas. And, you know, that's exactly what I try to avoid doing in a a homily, you know, salaula, because I find salaula homilies really difficult to follow when I'm listening Mm -hmm. to them. So when I do one of my own homilies, I try as much as possible to be disciplined and just focus in on one theme, one issue. So how have you honed in on these readings specifically? Well, on these readings, I've kind of honed in from looking at them from the perspective of Jesus's mission. 
So I think that a lot of the times that's my entry point into a gospel reading to just get into the mind of Jesus. Where is he in his mission at the moment? How is he feeling about the success of his mission or the lack of success of his mission? And what lessons is he drawing from it? And how is he imaging for us how we're supposed to then live our own discipleship as we try and follow in his footsteps? So just for our listeners, what would you say, you know, where is he in his mission right now? As we're looking at these readings, where is he in his mission? Well, I mean, so Matthew chapter 11 can kind of tell you we're around about the halfway point and we're in a we're in a part of Jesus' mission that him being the hottest thing on the block, the new kid on the block has worn off. He's now encountered enough opposition from his enemies, from the elite of Jewish society. And he's now kind of taking stock of saying, where am I? How is it gone? The failure of his great mentor, John the Baptist, to also have been accepted by people. John the Baptist has been killed. He's out of the picture. And maybe he's just a bit uh, frustrated with the way things are going. So you're in Zambia. Yeah. Not your native land, but you're living and working there now. Tell me about the congregation that you've prepared this homily for, but also what is it like to preach to a congregation where you you may not be as familiar with their context as perhaps a native person would be? So it's a kind of a two-edged sword because on the one hand, it is really difficult. I don't understand the culture. I don't speak any of the local languages. I wish I did. When I was in Zimbabwe, I speak the local language Shona. And well, I had a great time preaching in Zimbabwe because I would just get the local rap songs and then use them in my homilies and would go down like a house on fire, partly because I can't sing to save my life. So, you know, I'd have everyone in stitches as they tried to sing these songs. But often, you know, these rappers, they would be the social commentators of the very dire political situation and economic meltdown that we experienced in Zimbabwe and are still experiencing, unfortunately. But I said it's a double-edged sword because on the other side was a real advantage for me being here in Zambia is that I can take political examples that would be far too hot to drop in a homily in Zimbabwe with the political situation there. And I can bring them into a homily here in Zambia and people can really appreciate the analysis because I can speak a lot more freely using political situations and examples from just across the river. But I hope that as I pick up you know, more and more cultural references, be able to at least throw in a few words in the vernacular language, that it'll make my preaching a lot more kind of homegrown. So let's talk about this congregation that you've prepared the homily for, right? It's St. Ignatius Parish in Rose Park, Lusaka. And you've told me that it's a parish for the upper middle class urban population of Lusaka. What else do we need to know about this congregation that would help us to understand your homily and where it's coming from? Well, it's a congregation that has a lot of professionals in it. It's a congregation that has a lot of politicians in it. And it's basically the educated elite of Zambia. Great. So, you know, it might not be a Shona rap, but I'm certainly excited to hear what you have to preach for us today. So take it away. We will now hear Isaac L. Fernandez's homily for the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year A, especially recorded for Preach. In 1962, the social scientist E.M. Rogers came up with his diffusion of innovation theory that basically tries to explain how an idea or a new product gradually infiltrates 
a society and gains widespread acceptance. And this theory kind of divides the population into five slices according to a normal distribution curve. At the very start, you have a very small minority of a population who will accept this new idea. And these are called the innovators, less than 2%. And these are the people who are going to trailblaze and take the risk that comes with the uncertainty of a new product or a new idea. But they're a very small minority. The next group is the group that I would consider to be the most critical group. Again, fairly small, about 13 to 14% of the population, and they're called the early adopters. Now, you want your early adopters to be influential people, to use their influence in society to convince other people to adopt this new idea or this new product. Because if they're able to convince other people, you then get a large slice of the population. That's the next group called the early majority, about 34% adopting that idea or that product. And then come the next slice, the late majority, another 34%. And at the very tail end of the curve is the laggers, the last 15% who are really slow to adopt this new idea or new technology. But I want to zone in on this crucial group, this critical group of the early adopters. Because as I said, these are people, you really want them to be the movers and shakers in society. Because these are the people who are going to, with their clout, with their status, attract their followers, attract everybody else to adopt this new idea, to adopt this new product. So the more clout, the more status your early adopters have, the faster your idea penetrates into society. And what we have in today's gospel is Jesus basically doing the analysis of his early adopters. And when he does the analysis, what he finds is that far from having attracted the movers and shakers of society, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, you know, the people who would have status to get his new idea adopted quickly, what he finds is that his early adopters are the dregs of Jewish society. It's the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the uneducated peasants, the crippled, the lame. And what he says is, Father, I thank you for having hidden these things from the wise and the clever, read, you know, those who have status in society, and having revealed them to mere children. In our you know, modern day, modern context, we have kind of idealized children and they have become symbolic of a carefree innocence for us. That was not at all what they were symbolic of in first century Palestine. In first century Palestine, children were the people who had no rights and no status whatsoever. They were on the bottom of the pyramid. And this is what Jesus takes them to symbolize. And so we might find it rather bizarre that Jesus is thanking his father that his early adopters are at the bottom of the pyramid, people with no status whatsoever to advance the adoption of his new idea, which is the kingdom of God, this new idea that Jesus has been trying to preach to everyone. And it's even more bizarre when we put it in the context of what has just come before this in Matthew's gospel. Because just before, Jesus has been lamenting that John the Baptist has been branded as being possessed by a demon. And he himself has been taken as a drunkard and a glutton, someone who hangs around with sinners and tax collectors. And then he carries on further to lambast the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida and says to them, you know, because the miracles I worked there didn't lead to anybody's repentance. And if the same miracles had been worked in Tyre and Sidon, which are Gentile territories, they would have converted long ago. And so it's almost as if Jesus is having a rant here. 
He's filled with frustration at the failure of his mission. And then he stops short because the change in tone is just, it's so stark because he switches from this, from this almost rant into, Father, I bless you and thank you. And he's filled with gratitude. It's almost as if he stops short, takes a stand back from the situation, and then smiles, and then laughs at God's sense of humor, and thanks his father for this paradoxical wisdom of having chosen the lowly and the meek. And it's almost as if Jesus catches the evil spirit who was trying to insinuate its way into his heart with this frustration, this anger, this lashing out at the failure and, and, and the hard-hearted people who have refused to accept him. Jesus catches this evil spirit and nicks it in the bud. And how does he do it? He just takes a step back. And Jesus always has, this is the amazing thing about Jesus, he always has his hand on the pulse. He can see God working in reality. And he catches the footprints of God at work. And he says, oh, there you are, Father. Well, thank you. Thank you for having revealed it to the simple of mind. And he lets himself be won over by the Father's preferential option for the poor, the lowly, and the meek. And I think there's a profound lesson in this for us. Because so often when we encounter an obstacle in our ways as human beings, when we encounter failure, our knee-jerk reaction is to just, you know, redouble our efforts or throw more money at the problem. You know, so to make it go away, we just obliterate it with our efforts, our money, and our resources. And, you know, it's almost as like, <laughs> the good image for this is when you're in a car and you're stuck in the mud. The knee-jerk reaction might be to floor the accelerator. But we all know that <laughs> that's just only going to end badly. You're going to just end up getting more and more stuck in the mud. And so Jesus invites us to say, when you have encountered a problem, when you have an experience of failure, come to me and learn from me. Shoulder my yoke, which is an easy yoke. Shoulder my burden, which is a light burden. And I think what he's inviting us to do is to take a step back, to just take a step back and realize the work of God in this situation that is frustrating us, and to let our frustration evaporate as we appreciate the paradoxical wisdom at work in the world through God's action in the world here. And so I think that we might go deeper and ask ourselves, when Jesus says, come and learn from me, and I love the French translation of this. It's, mettez-vous dans mon école. Put yourselves in my school. So learn from me, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we might want to ask ourselves, how is it that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light? Because if we just look at the analysis that he's done of his early adopters, it's the dregs of Jewish society. If his mission, the success of his mission, depends on attracting the whole of Israel, because this was his mission to renew the house of Israel, to attract them and let them be won over by his new idea of the kingdom of God. If his early adopters are the dregs of Jewish society, he's not going to get very far. I mean, he's going to have to put in a lot of grunt work in order for his mission to be successful. And so we might ask ourselves, well, his yoke looks like it's really heavy and his burden must be overwhelming. Why is he not worried about the success of his mission? And I think here an insight from Richard Rohr is apt because Richard Rohr looks at the temptations that Jesus encountered in the desert. And the first temptation, the temptation of turning stones into bread, Richard Rohr identifies that as being symbolic of Jesus' temptation during his public ministry to use his power and his clout as the Son of God to be successful. In other words, to throw everything that he has at his mission to ensure that it's an absolute success. 
And as Mother Teresa reminds us, God does not call us to be successful. God calls us to be faithful. And I think therein lies the clue to understanding how Jesus's yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because Jesus has understood this fundamental truth that God is not asking him to live by bread alone, by success. Rather, God is calling him to be faithful to his mission. And I think that Jesus gradually realizes as he reaches this halfway point of his mission that actually being faithful is going to take him to the cross. And this is why at the, the halfway point of his mission in all the, the synoptic gospels, you start having the predictions of the passion. And, you know, I think it's important that we take Jesus as a human being and that we hold to the fact that as he was here at this halfway point of his mission, I don't think he had a clear idea of how the cross, his death, his subsequent resurrection and the descent of the Holy Spirit would lead to his new movement becoming spreading like wildfire. I don't think he had that all figured out. But this is the whole point. He didn't have to have it figured out because he was simply content to place the success of his mission into the Father's hands. And says, Father, look, I don't know how this is going to work out. It looks pretty bleak now, but I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to leave this in your hands. I don't need to ensure the success of my mission through my own effort. It's in your hands. And that's how my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so I think Jesus invites us to learn from him in this, that Similarly, in our own lives, when we're up between a rock and a hard place, when we're contending with failure, that we're able to just surrender into the Father's hands and say, Father, th this is in your hands. I'm going to let you determine the success here, and I'm just going to learn to trust. And so I think that this is precisely the powerlessness, the meekness, and the gentleness that Jesus is imaging for us, and why Jesus can celebrate his Father revealing the truth of the mysteries of the kingdom to the lowly, the meek, the children, the dregs of Jewish society. And I think we're called to journey with the powerless in our own lives, to journey with Jesus that we learn this lesson of surrender. And so I invite you all to pray for this grace in this Eucharist. That was Isaac L. Fernandez. After the break, we'll hear how Isaac learned to depart from his prepared text and preach from the heart. Welcome back to Preach. Isaac, that was an incredible homily, but I want to start somewhere where I don't think our listeners are able to capture because, of course, they're not looking at you as we are. And so the thing that really grabbed me about your homily, first of all, is just you didn't break eye contact, right? It felt like you were looking at me the whole time. You had a pretty smiley disposition, even through some of the more difficult stuff, but you really kept an upbeat disposition, which kept me engaged. And then the other thing is there were parts at which you were sort of racing, and, and I'm sure the listeners could hear this, like you were going really fast and at a pace, at a clip, and then you slowed it right down, right? I mean, so much about homiletics is about delivery, is about pacing. And you've certainly given me a masterclass in that. But I wonder if you can talk about your own decision to use that and, and you know, or whether it just sort of the Holy Spirit takes over. I mean, I certainly know in my case, that's what happens. But there must be something to the craft of it as well that I think you're doing deliberately. 
I'll start with the eye contact. And this came from an experience. So I actually learned to preach because my first mission as a Jesuit after ordination was in a inner city parish, very poor parish in the heart of Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe, where all the masses were in Shona, the local vernacular that I didn't master very well at all when I first arrived. And so in the beginning, I was typing up my homilies, having them checked by a fellow Jesuit who was Shona, and then I would read them. But then one Sunday, about maybe a month or two into my stay there in this parish, it was been a hectic week. I hadn't had time to finish preparing my homily. I only had half a homily written and typed up. And so I read the first half and then I just started winging it, you know, and then I went and I walked, started walking around and suddenly I realized as soon as I started just winging it, everybody sat up and started paying attention. And I thought, okay, this is the last time I'm going to read a homily. Also, what I noticed is that when I write a homily, I won't necessarily remember to say everything that I've written, but what I will remember is the stuff that's closest to my heart. It's the stuff that I can preach with conviction. And then people say, thank you, Father. That was amazing. Now, and it just kind of brought home to me, well, you know, it's, it's much more about the conviction that I say a homily with than about the clever ideas that one might have. I can attest to that. I mean, certainly in my own preaching, I've realized I started off and I was very much text bound. And now I very seldom have more than a couple of notes. But I have prepared, right? I mean, I have prayed. And it's clear to me that you've done the same. You've prepared, you've prayed, you know where this is going. So it isn't quite winging it, is it? No, no, not at all. Yeah. And I think that's very important to stress. Thank you for bringing that up because I do type up my whole homily. But the typing up I do is for me because I find that if I just do like shorthand notes, then I may miss the chance to expand an idea that otherwise I probably wouldn't have thought of going down. So the very writing out of it is an opportunity for me to explore the idea because I'm exploring as I write. And as I write, sometimes there's dead ends. You come to a dead end and you think, okay, this paragraph is going nowhere. So scrap it and start with a new idea, you know? So let's break down this homily. I mean, let's piece it together, right? You start with the diffusion of innovation theory. So you've included all this interdisciplinary statistics and all kinds of things. I'm just sort of wondering, how do you come to this idea of, oh, let me start with the diffusion of innovation theory. So the diffusion theory is the hook, you know, just, I know I'm talking to a congregation that has a lot of professionals in it and a lot of business people who've studied marketing. So they know about the early adoption. So I'm trying to get into their, you know, what St. Francis Xavier says, going through their door to come out through your door. Mm -hmm. But I don't always do that, you know, because again, you don't want to fall into the same formula every time because then your, your listeners will get bored, especially if you have the same congregation all the time. Other times I would find a proverb. The culture here, both in Zimbabwe and in Zambia, is kind of a wisdom culture. Working in the parish, I was very surprised how there would be a huge raging debate in the parish council meeting. And then suddenly it would be settled by the quoting of one proverb. And then everyone would say, oh yeah, sure, that's... Because it's this received wisdom of the elders that they hold in such great respect. And so when you use a proverb in your homily, again, it's you've like really got their attention. And you've connected the gospel to this received wisdom of the ancestors, of the elders who have gone before them. So, yeah, I try to change it up. You know, what the hook is. Is it a Shona rap song? Is it a proverb? Is it a something from drawn from sociology or a TED talk that I've watched or some, you know, story that I've read on social media? 
when you set up the congregation at the beginning, right? I mean, you spoke about a congregation of significant material wealth and influence. And here we have a message which is critical of precisely that sort of person, right? So I'm thinking, how do you, other than smile and warmth and pacey delivery, like how do you really get that message to the congregation without them feeling shamed by it, right? So that they can truly be enabled by the critique rather than put off by it and shut down. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the way that I did it in my homily was certainly not targeting them. What I was trying to show was how it was a temptation for Jesus, and I think is a fundamental human temptation for all of us. The fact that they do happen to be a successful population is hopefully how I how I hope that it's going to kind of touch their hearts and target them. But I think that, yeah, you have to be really delicate and diplomatic in these when you are kind of taking on such a congregation in that you maintain their favorable response to you. Because if you alienate your congregation, yeah, I think that that's, the, and, and I, I've done that. How do you imagine this message will be heard in the congregation about trusting God, being faithful without concern for success? Is it a challenging message for this congregation to receive? I think it's a, it will be a challenging message for some of them. But I also realize, because I think what also informs our preaching and should inform our preaching as pastors is hearing confessions, because that also really gives me such an insight into what are people really struggling with. And, you know, what I've come to realize just from hearing confessions at this parish is how many people are struggling with failure, you know, struggling with being out of a job, struggling just with the failure of personal relationships and so on. And so I think, I hope also this message will be a consoling message to the people who are struggling with failure to realize that, you know, Jesus also struggled with the same frustration of failure. And how did he deal with it? He dealt with it by surrendering to the Lord and trusting in his father. And I mean, that's kind of where you end, right? You say, we don't have to have it all figured out, right? We don't have to have the perfect plan. We don't have to have all the success in the world. What we do have to do is we have to place our trust in God. And that's sort of the enduring message, trust in God. God will see you through this. So thank you. I and mean, thank you for this conversation. It's been a wonderful opportunity to get to know you a little better, and certainly as a preacher. And I'm sure that our listeners will profit greatly from your wisdom. Well, thanks, Ricardo. It's been an honor to collaborate with you. So thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Preach. You can find the readings and a link to the transcript for the homily in our show notes. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Compelling Preaching Initiative, a project of Lilly Endowment, Inc. Preach is produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Frank Tewson is our audio engineer. He also designed the theme score and composed original music for the podcast. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer. We recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spillman. If you've heard a great homily recently or know a great preacher you'd like to recommend for this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please follow the link in our show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at RickDSSJ. That's R-I-C-D-S-S-J. And one more thing. Did you know that America Media can deliver new scripture reflections to your inbox every day? 
If you are already a digital subscriber, they're probably in your inbox. If not, become a digital subscriber today for just $5.99 a month. It's the best way to support our work here on Preach. Just visit the link in the show notes. For American Media, I'm Ricardo De Silva. Until next time, keep preaching the good news. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.